You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. And a very warm welcome back to Solidarity Breakfast. A left response to the major developments in capitalism. What they trade in is not wheat. They trade in famine. A little dose of revolutionary optimism. I think it's really important to sort of express solidarity globally. It really is a deal by corporations for corporations. The union forever defending our rights down with the black If you think the ABC's left wing, don't listen to this program. Solidarity Breakfast, 7.30 to 9am Saturdays, 3CR, 8.55am. Streaming and 3CR digital, podcast or audio on demand. And of course, the website, solidaritybreakfast.org.au. Solidarity forever! Good morning, everyone. With me on Saturday morning and a general welcome to anyone listening later. This is Annie and today we start with a reflection on the not-so-United States and Black Lives Matter with a word from Thomas Mayer writer, activist and unionist, National Indigenous Officer for the Maritime Union of Australia. We follow this with a return from one of the regulars of the show, Anne Davies from Fair Go for Pensioners, who outlines what they see as the key issues as we go out of COVID-19 hibernation. Environmental defenders up at Warburton are calling for help to defend Big Pat's Creek from logging and Kevin Healy has a roundup of the week that will cause consternation, as usual, if not a few titters. We'll finish with a riff on the call for a jobs guarantee and a chat from a filmmaker who tells the story of the women of steel. But first, a very important message from the station. Throughout the month of June, we'll be asking you, the listener, to support radical community-owned media during our June Station Appeal. We'll be taking donations online to help keep the station going for another year. Like so many community organisations, we're feeling the impact of COVID-19 restrictions, and we know you are too. But independent community media is more important than ever, and we hope you can show your support with a donation. The 3CR Station Appeal starts on Monday the 1st of June. To donate, go to 3cr.org.au. 3CR, here to stay. You're back with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast. And indeed, 3CR are asking for donations to keep on air online because COVID has interrupted the normal flows. Go to 3cr.org.au to keep all your favourite independent shows on air. Despite efforts to characterise the mass rallies in support of Black Lives Matter as the problem in America, the dreadful body count of black deaths at the hands of police in America, in particular the agony of George Floyd's death in Minneapolis, uh, it just will not go away. And uh, despite uh, Trump uh, telling them that they'll bring, he'll bring out the army, people are not quelled. And uh, it's been continuing f- uh, for a long time. But it's a pressure cooker situation. I, I just want to read you something from Josie Duffy Rice. She's the president of a, an organisation called The Appeal, 
who was responding to the question, what should Americans expect from the police? And this is what she wrote. When I left college, I was working in the South Bronx and I remember being blown away at how many resources had been siphoned out of a community and replaced by a criminal justice system. There were no parks, the schools were bad, there were just no places for anybody to be where there wasn't a police officer on the corner. Nobody picked up the trash. I mean, this was a community that had a line outside the courthouse that was six, seven, eight blocks long. You understood very intimately how we are giving a system that is supposed to be on the back end of the social process front-end jobs. And that is not a way to create better police. The answer is that we should expect less of the police, that we should demand less of our criminal justice system as a general rule, but we should simultaneously expect more from all the other social systems that are relying on the criminal justice system to implement the values or the order to a community that police are now expected to do. To quote a former co-worker, invest, divest. If we're going to divest from the system, what are we going to invest in and how are we going to shift accountability in that same paradigm? The other thing is that people don't actually understand or have an accurate perception of crime. Most people in this country, and they're talking about America, are safer today than they've been in five decades by a long shot. In most communities in this country, you could leave your kid in your car outside and they would be fine. You're not at risk of immediate threat. And then there are other places in this country where it's worse than it's ever been. It's so dependent on so many things. We were just looking at a town in West Virginia where the property crime rate plummeted over six months and the question was, who got to take credit, the police or the prosecutor? And it turns out that the local Walmart closed down and people couldn't steal from the local Walmart anymore because it wasn't there. And that's actually a sad story that property crime rate dropping was due to a loss of jobs or loss of resources. One of the things when we see public safety budgets going up and we also know that crime is lower than it was 20 or 30 years ago, we have to ask ourselves what we're getting out of our money and we should start asking ourselves what the return on our investment really is. Yeah, there you go. I weren't on my team. This same long-term disenfranchisement and focused injustice is found here in Australia. And the following piece is from the latest MUA show, the uh, Maritime Union of Australia show on 3CR. You can find their podcast on our website and it's got the full uh, program. Thomas Mayo is an advocate for the Uluru Statement from the Heart and the National Indigenous Officer for the Maritime Union of Australia and the Northern Territory State Secretary. Morrison, our Prime Minister, sent a tweet saying, oh, thank goodness that we don't have this racism in Australia. Isn't that just um, just the height of ignorance, you know? The absolute height of ignorance. We are a country that is built on, on, on stolen land um, that has benefited from the genocide of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, the attempted, attempted genocide. We have survived... Um, the attempts to um, then wipe us out by assimilation and uh, and um, trying to punish 
um, out of our, ourselves, our culture and our languages. Um, and it just continues today, you know. I mean, just before I jumped onto this, I saw on social media the um, a 17-year-old Aboriginal boy, I think it was in Sydney, and I don't know much more about it, but, um, but what I did see in the video was that the lad, I mean, he gave a bit of cheek, um, but he didn't deserve what came next. He was... Um, he was basically had the, the his legs um, uh, ripped out from underneath him and face slammed, and then um, just like Floyd in in the US recently, um, the police officer then put his knees into him and, and pinned him down. Um, you know, and and that's just today. I think it was. Uh, this is uh, still going on. It is um, a as much a reality in Australia as it is in the US. And um, that a prime minister um, can say such a thing uh, on stolen Aboriginal land is just a disgrace. Um, and he's, he's no different than um, President Trump in that regard, you know, the ignorance. And it's just so shameful. Yeah, well, I put it this way, you know, I mean, for, um, for all of our protests in Australia um, around these deaths in custody, um, what have we seen as far as accountability goes? seen nothing right let's let's and i and i say this to activists and i say this to activists that have been involved in the struggle for indigenous rights and brothers and sisters that are listening to this for all of our protests for all of our actions we have not held one of these bastards to account and that includes the politicians that are that are enacting things like the intervention that are cutting the guts out of funding to services to remote communities which one of these politicians have we held to account with our actions, none of them. That tells us we need to change our strategy. That tells me that we need to do better at these actions on the streets, but we also need other layers of our advocacy. And so while it is much more romantic, you know, as in much more, it feels good to get on the streets and be radical, you're not being radical if you're not changing anything. And so the most important thing is to take on what seems less romantic, which is to, you know, change the constitution um, so that we're always heard. Um, but that, I tell you what, that is the key. And it's like for unionists to understand, anyone that's been involved in unions, it is us establishing our union as 3% of the population um, in a way that 97% of the population, their representatives cannot get rid of again. And it's a powerful thing. Two things happened this week. I mean, it's a reconciliation week or coming to the end of it, but yep. uh, two things happened. The uh, obliteration of the 40,000-year-old uh, cave with artefacts in it by Rio Tinto, as well as the High Court decision that gave recognised title to their land, homelands in Western Australia for a particular... Aboriginal group, uh, clan group. Two amazingly yeah. different things. Yeah, very different things. And um, I'll touch on both of them, though. I mean, when we talk about what Rio Tinto did, I mean, I mean, that's that's like to murder, you know, for us. You know, that is that is, uh, you know, I mean, country is seen as a, as a living thing um, in our culture. Um, you know, it, it's it's part of us. Um, and particularly when we're talking about such a significant site with so much um, of our historical, um, you know, 
ancestry recorded there. Our, you know, it's just a an absolute disgrace that that happened there. And um, and you know, I mean, it's a bit like we talk about in in the um, in the union movement. You know, about accountability. Um, the uh, you know uh, you know kill a worker, go to jail, that sort of thing. And I mean, somebody should go to jail for what happened. Um, you know, uh, in Western Australia, there on that country, um, and the, again, it goes to the way that we can affect um, legislation in this country and policy. And while a voice, there's no guarantee that a constitutionally enshrined voice, as called for in the Uluru Statement, would have stopped that. Um, certainly, though, it could have. Um, it would be pursuing. Um, with a with national coordination and the strength that comes from unity in that sense um, to to change that legislation so that it never happens again um, to see that seek the the federal government to implement federal laws um, that will ensure that it doesn't happen in any state and so we're not playing catch up anywhere um, and then also hold Rio Tinto to account in the way that a union holds um, companies to account when they do um, such terrible things to workers um, and pursue them with all vigour in a campaign that seeks to, to um, ensure um, that they will never do it again, you know? And so that's the value of the voice there. On the other, I mean, it's a, it's a great um, achievement um, when, a, um, when a mob is able to defend their country um, and, and win back native title. Um, but it's far too difficult and, again, inconsistent. And, uh, and, uh, and that's, again, why we need better coordination amongst our First Nations to be able to change native title legislation so that we don't have to appeal such things in the future, um, to be able to have the right to veto when a mining company wants to, um, wants to rip up our land and our sacred sites. And, you know, like... It seems like I'm repeating myself, but everything has a root cause, you know, and if we are unable to affect the, the highest level of decision making in this country, as only 3% of the population and all the challenges that that has as far as influencing that sort of thing, um, and, and with the reality that we are not going to um, take back our sovereignty in a East Timorese style fighting for independence or an African style where you're a majority of the population, fighting back, um, fighting for independence, then this is the most important thing that we can do as a people, both Indigenous and non-Indigenous, is to build our structure, our union, our unity in a way that goes beyond just beating your chest at a, um, at a rally saying we need to be united, but actually doing that work. And uh, it's important that people understand that. Truth-telling isn't only about the past, it's also about our present. Um, in regard to what we're calling for in the Uluru Statement, um, a Makarata Commission to supervise that process. And, you know, um, we envision that when we set up a formal national process of um, truth-telling and agreement-making, Makarata, um, and Makarata, for the listeners, is a Yolmu word. So the, um, the people of northeast Arnhem Land, uh, Makarata is a process, and it's a process that um, is still uh, a way of uh, dispute re resolution today. Um, where people um, bring with them the truth in their hearts um, and with the commitment. Truth-telling isn't only about the past, it's also about our present um, in regard to what we're calling for in the Uluru Statement, um, a Makarata Commission to supervise that process. And, 
you know, um, we envision that when we set up a formal national process of um, truth-telling and agreement-making, Makarata, um, and Makarata, for the listeners, is a Yolmu word. So the, um, the people of Northeast Arnhem Land, uh, Makarata is a process, and it's a process that um, is still uh, a way of uh, dispute re- resolution today, um, where people um, bring with them the truth in their hearts, um, and with the commitment to reach an agreement on how to settle their differences. And, and um, at the end of that process, um, at settlement, uh, have um, a, a much closer bond um, between the disputing parties to the point where if we're talking about a, an individual disputing with another, you know, one family disputing with the other, um, that, that person um, would be accepted into the other family as, uh, you know, as loved as a family member, you know, and, and that's, that's the vision of the Uluru Statement to have this process. But to go to the point here, it's not only about um, historical truth-telling, it's about the truth of um, the, the present um, and the truth of, um, as you mentioned earlier, 400 deaths in custody without justice. It's the truth of the, um, the, social, um, uh, the social issues that have been caused by our history that exists today. It's a truth that we don't have um, a say on the decisions that are made about us in the parliaments of Australia. Um, and all of these things, um, talking like a, um, from a union perspective, from a, a union uh, organiser, official ex- um, perspective, the truth is, is leverage, you know. Um, the truth is something that um, is not something that should be done first, as some people say, um, but is, is something that needs to be used um, uh, contemporaneously um, to achieve a settlement um, and agreements on how we repair that damage and, and what is, um, what is, uh, what is um, given over um, as recompense um, for the way that we've been treated. And so that's the idea of truth-telling. Um, and, uh, and you need a voice to be able to use that truth. And when we talk about the, um, the deaths in custody, what is happening in the United States and what is happening here, um, the same issue, um, systemic racism based on a, a, a colonial structure that hasn't included um, people of uh, colour um, and particularly Indigenous people in this country, um, we, um, we need to... Um, change that system we need to reform that system so those voices are included and when we're talking about the violence um, that police are perpetrating against us and the violence that decision makers are perpetrating against us through their failed policies and legislation the only way to address that is to influence those decisions um, and have our sovereign voice in the middle of decision making so that they don't um, so that system can be reformed um, and that's really what the Uluru Statement calls for, and it's um, it's a solution to this problem, and it, it won't be addressed until we have a voice um, that can be unapologetic and uh, and uh, and sovereign in that it speaks for ourselves and, and you know, based on um, people that we elect to represent us. Yeah, and a shout-out to David um, Dungay's family as well. Um, they are still fighting for justice, as many of the families are, Um and, uh, and we need to show our solidarity with these families, you know, as, as members of the union movement and, and, and as, you know, citizens of this country and, uh, and people of decency. Um, it's just shocking and, 
you know, our, our solidarity with those families. Yeah. Well, I think firstly, and I'll repeat it because it's important, show up, you know, at, um, at these sorts of rallies and things. Um, you know, public dissent is extremely important. Our protests, they're raising these issues to the point where they cannot be ignored. Um, but more than that, um, we also need to be um, attacking the systemic problem, you know, or supporting Indigenous people on addressing the systemic problem. And the only national campaign um, that exists on that is the Uluru Statement from the Heart. I encourage um, comrades to go to www.fromtheheart.com.au, which is a new education project that we have um, that has uh, um, campaign tools. Pretty soon it'll have a portal for people to be able to express their support, um, you know, individually or in groups, um, like a sort of like an online petition type of thing that we'll be establishing um, and share the words of the Uluru Statement around uh, as, you know, a very visionary and, and hopeful invitation to the Australian people to walk with us towards um, a referendum that can permanently change um, the, the way, the interface with us in decision-making. And so that is um, the most important thing to do um, and share that information and, and get involved in any way that we ask, once you sign up on that, you know, we'll be communicating ways to get involved over the coming uh, months. This is a crucial time. Um, there will be a public submissions process coming up after July about the design of a model. Um, the government, the coalition government, is not supportive of underpinning um, or constitutionally enshrining the voice, um, underpinning the voice with the constitution so that it's permanent and cannot be attacked by a hostile government or destroyed by a hostile government. Um, and so we'll be looking for comrades, individuals, organisations, unions to um, make submissions in that process to say that even though um, the government has said that, uh, that um, they will not underpin the voice by the constitution, as in how this um, model will be recommended from this advisory group, um, we want it on the record. That, the, that we understand that the Uluru Statement was a national consensus and that this is the most important um, part of the model of a voice that it is underpinned by the Constitution. What are, what are we going to play? Um, is this what we deserve? That's her. I hope this doesn't... I hope this song doesn't um, slap you across the face too much uh, out there in, uh, in Maroondah. Mm. I performed this song on the banks, not of the Murrumbidgee, but on the banks of the Thames in London. And I sang this song to uh, I, sang, I, I sang this song to uh, the British, and hopefully they got the gist of uh, what the song really means. A song called "Is This What We Deserve." We 
been here since time began Our ancestors' footprints Spread right across this land We are but caretakers Of this ancient land But you still don't understand Is this what we deserve? Is this what we deserve? Lovely harmonies, Daniel. This is what we deserve. Can you tell me now? Is this what we So unjustified How basic human rights Have been denied They come up with excuses That their hands are tied But go on committing genocide Is this what we that what's that chord that that different that's it you're back with annie on solidarity breakfast on 3cr your community radio virgo for pensioners has been working behind the scenes with a coalition of groups to campaign for the retention of the present level of dole which is now being called job seeker used to be called new start until it got a bad rep 
Anyway, the uh, government is saying it will be returned to its old rate by September the 28th. And you may already know that uh, the mutual obligation clause in uh, Job Seeker has been reactivated and should be uh, uh, people should be pestered by um, June the 9th to start uh, uh, producing job applications for jobs that they can't get or aren't there. I spoke to Anne Davies for an idea of the issues that Bear Go for Pensioners believe are the key to a fairer Australia coming out of the COVID-19 hibernation. One of the key things that we're concerned about is what's going to happen with the so-called snapback um, when if we eventually emerge from the um, COVID virus. And we just think that we, what we actually need to avoid a snapback to our unequal society and that we can't leave vision, policy and commitment to big business and the government. At Fairgo for Pensioners, we think that now's exactly the time to work on what to do for a fair and just society in a post-COVID-19 world in Australia. In short, a fair go for life for all. You know, we believe that so many people were left behind pre-COVID-19 with one in eight living in poverty and increasing homelessness. And ahead, we're looking at two to three million workers, 14 to 26% of all employees like being likely to be thrown out of work. So we actually think that at the root of poverty is income and wealth inequality, which we have here in Australia at the moment and had pre-COVID. And of the 34 wealthy countries in the OECD, Australia is now in the top third of the most unequal so we're in the bottom third at the moment if we're looking at, at we're looking worldwide. And we also know that lower income workers are twice as likely to be out of work as high income earners and that young workers and women will be the hardest hit working in jobs within industries that are also the hardest hit. So that's a big concern that we have is just that overall inequity that we had previously but that is going to be further reinforced unless there are some positive steps taken by government to address those, all of those issues. So do you believe that this inequality is actually policy-driven? Oh, I do. I, I, I definitely believe that. Um, we have always um, believed that as a key issue at, um, at Fair Go for Pensioners. The, and it really... We haven't moved on all that far from um, certain groups being seen as deserving and others being seen as undeserving. And I actually think that the increase, for example, in the job seeker, the formerly New Start, renamed job seeker, demonstrates that. It's wonderful that that was given a doubling and a boost, but I think it being put out of work so-called by the by COVID was seen as far more deserving and not and shouldn't be expected to live on what other people had been struggling to live on for years who were already unemployed. And I think that really showed just that real attitude as you're saying, around who's deserving and who is undeserving. We have six key areas that we think could be put into place by governments of, of any colour um, to to improve equity and equality in Australia. And, of course, one of those is to raise income support payments to the OECD poverty line. And whereas that 
at the moment, even with what JobSeeker is at now, it's still not up to that and neither are other pensions and a whole range of payments that people depend on. And also, we cannot go back to what New Start was. Fair go for pensioners is joining a coalition of people to uh, a groups that are going to be forcing this issue, aren't you? Yes, that's correct. Um, we're part of a, gr- a group that is just looking, to, seeking to um, have it made really clear and have an understanding from government that we must actually raise income support payments. We need to create to improve wellbeing, to create jobs, but also to stimulate consumer spending, which will in turn give some stimulus to the economy. We all know, I mean, it's in line with that old um, furphy of the deserving and the undeserving, there's also the furphy of trickle down. And that doesn't work. All that does is keep people with wealth to continue to have wealth and in fact increase their wealth and those who are without wealth and don't have an opportunity to be a part of that will continue to become further behind and disadvantaged. So, so we're very strong on that. The other thing that we would like to see happen is a commitment to full employment and a living wage by undertaking government-run job creation programs to prevent long-term and structural, structural unemployment, which, and we have not seen for a very long time any intent to put those kinds of programs into place. Um, in fact, any programs so-called programs that are put into place are only those who increase profit margins to those who are actually making a very good living off people who are unemployed and struggling. And we, we see that, um, you know, with the infamous uh, work for the dole, the so-called mutual obligation, we see it with the employment services and the amount of money that they make just for writing a letter just for forcing somebody to come to a meaningless appointment. And that's something that we really must step back from and look at having proper, properly run job creation programs to make a difference in those structural issues. It goes directly, again, is housing. We all know that if people don't have safe, secure affordable accommodation, which we should have recognised a long time as a basic right, not a privilege, but a basic right. And yet we still have so many people without that. And so there needs to be an investment in public housing. And we believe we would need to be building 30,000 public housing homes each year for the next 20 years. And that would meet need, but it would also create a huge amount of jobs and a huge stimulus to the economy whilst at the same time providing that much-needed housing. There's just a few other things that we have as our key points, and that's to expand public sector employment to provide essential public services for people and communities rather than have that as it is now being privatised and continuing to be privatised. And to revitalise manufacturing and also, of course, the other thing, and it's fallen off, well, it was never on the agenda for um, this government, but that's fallen off now and that's to create a national renewable energy economy for a sustainable future. That is vital. It came to the forefront uh, 
with the terrible fire season we had, the bushfire season we had, but that has just seems to have fallen off the agenda again now and it's something that we really need to keep pushing for a sustainable future. So Fair Go for Pensioners are advocating these principles and you're looking for new members. Oh yes, we, we're always very keen to have any new members because, you know, we will come back to a time when we can have face-to-face meetings, when we can do what we believe is one of our core strengths, which is being active, lobbying, having demonstrations outside politicians' offices, holding rallies outside the state library. I mean, we've not been able to do those all of those things that we would normally have scheduled and have a particular need for now even more than before but there will come a time when we are able to do those things again and we will be out there doing that and we would of course always love to have any new people who would be able to join us and work with us in that. If anybody wanted to make contact I'll give you uh, my number that's probably easiest and then I can always look at who are you know passing it on to so I can be contacted on 0409 one nine two double six eight, and I'd be very happy to speak to anyone who was who was interested in joining us or, or just wanted to have a chat about what we do. This is David Rovix, and you are tuned to Three CR eight fifty five AM, Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do, and everything can change. You're listening to Solidarity Breakfast. The line has been drawn up in the Warburton Ranges, northeast of Melbourne. This is the uh, fifth consecutive week that logging operations have been interrupted at the site by Warburton locals, who say logging in the area would jeopardise their water security and increase fire risk to residential areas in the decades to come. And uh, a young woman has locked on to a harvester in the active logging coop, Big Pats Creek, and that was on Thursday at 6am. She said, These forests are massively under threat. We must take direct action to stop trees from falling, even amidst court cases, negotiations and internal political dialogues. We can't risk standing back and watching as logging it inevitably continues throughout these processes. I spoke to Kim, who's a representative of the Defenders of Warburton Ranges. Can you describe to our listeners what's yeah, going sure. on, please? Yep. Um, this is the fifth week of consecutive protest at Big Pat's Creek. We have a young woman, Angela, locked onto a logging machine today, stopping work in Big Pat's Creek near Warburton. This logging coop is right near um, a creek that provides drinking water for Warburton. Um, Logging like this actually increases bushfire risk hugely and this coop is actually only 1.5 k's away from the closest residential places. So locals in Warburton and the smaller town of Big Pat's Creek are really concerned about this logging. They have been looking for consultation with both the Environment Minister and Vic Forest for many, many weeks and haven't received a response. Logging commenced without consultation. So the locals have felt that they've actually had no choice but to take direct action. Um, they've had a, a tree suit and about three different people locked to machines in, these, in this, the last few weeks and have successfully stopped work in that coop 
Um, they also found a sooty owl in the coop, um, and we know that that species is really threatened, particularly after the bushfires. Um, so once again, as we've seen with the recent court case that friends of the leadbeater's possum have brought, Vic Forest has not surveyed properly. They are a corrupt organisation and they are destroying our native forest right in the middle of a climate crisis. Before the COVID-19 pandemic shutdown or stay at home, there was a really big demonstration outside Victoria Parliament around the so-called declaration of the stopping of cutting down of old growth forests in Victoria, in fact, the curtailing of logging. People felt that there was some sort of victory involved here, but there's real problems, isn't there, if if this is happening where you are? Yeah, so the Victorian government did promise to transition out of native forest logging by 2030. The problem is these ecosystems are collapsing now. They're actually, as an entire ecosystem, critically endangered now. And amazing species like the mountain ash, which is actually the tallest flowering tree in the world, and also some of the most carbon-dense forests in the world, so it protects us from, from climate impacts, those trees actually aren't establishing fast enough when they, when they grow back as well. Um, so the transition needs to happen now. Um, the government could have transitioned the timber industry years ago. Um, 2030 is way, way too far away. And at the moment, what they're logging, well over 80% of that is chip for cheap copy paper, cheap office paper like reflex paper or cheap packaging products. So there is no reason to be tearing down native forest in the middle of a climate emergency for paper. The transition really needs to happen now in 2020, particularly in light of the bushfires. So while that might have been a a minor win and a step forward that the Labor government actually committed to transitioning out of native forest logging, the context has changed. After the bushfires, in the midst of climate emergency, when our native species are in an extinction crisis, and especially after this court case has proved what campaigners have been saying for years, that thick forests are not surveying our native wildlife properly and they are not complying with federal environment law when they're violating their regional agreements either. So things have changed. The government needs to reassess and we need to transition now. Now, Vic... Um, forests um, and uh, a lot, a, the, obviously it's local uh, timber mills. Is there a local timber mill that's involved in this? So for the Central Highlands region where where the lock-on happened today in Warburton, um, the mill is Hayfield Mill, which the government actually bought out um, because it was running at a loss a few years ago. So a, a lot of smaller sawmills around uh, Victoria are actually hoping that the transition time will be brought forward so that they can transition out of the industry. The logging industry hasn't really been making profit or breaking even for decades now. Um, part of that is because it's been overlogged and there aren't the saw logs to, to produce um, quality hardwood anymore. We only have the chip industry operating. Um, the main contract that Hayfield Sawmill uh, saw has is Australian Paper. Um, so Australian Paper is owned by Nippon Paper in Japan um, and that's the main contract which they seem unwilling to break with um, and that's that's why the transition is so far in the future. 
um, which seems absurd, that we'd be logging our forests to collapse for paper. So what they've done is signed contracts with uh, Australian Paper that have taken it, have uh, ensured um, supply to 2030. That's really what's going on, isn't it? Yeah, I believe so. I believe that's the main driver of why the transition is taking so long. And we know most Victorians really want to protect our native forests instead. Um, I, I believe the government knows that. Um, people have been very vocal about it and written submissions about the regional forest agreements and things that they've rolled over. And especially after the bushfires, we know that we're all we're grieving for our forests, we're grieving for our native wildlife already. Um, and, and we just... I think we need to all really, really make it clear if you can ring the, the Environment Minister, Lily D'Ambrosio, ring Andrews and ring the Agricultural Minister, Jacqueline Sines. Um, email them as well and a formal letter is even better to to bring that transition forward from 2030 and to transition out of native forest logging now. Better yet, um, get in contact with Protect Warburton Rangers and get involved with us, take some direct action and drive that change with, with everyday people in our communities because if anything's been proven over the last few years with the forest campaign, is the government isn't acting with enough, enough urgency to respond to these different crises we're in. Thanks for talking to me. Thanks. Good on you. Thanks so much for the call. Really appreciate it. No worries. Bye. A weak solidarity, Bricky Team Lister, when we experienced kindness, humility, sense sensitivity and self-awareness from our big supremo Scuttlebin Morlash son and US of the UN of the US of the world big supremo Donald Trample the poor. Here as Scuttlebin seeks consensus between caring employers and evil unions who are temporally not evil, agreement on essential economic reforms like lower pay, the removal of a few crippling conditions like holidays, weekends off, nights off, sick leave, costly health and safety measures, that sort of minor sacrifice. And the biggest barrier this week to industrial reform, the boot clause. Give boot the boot the better off overall test because caring employers know they can't do that which they exist to do provide jobs and good pay for lazy avaricious workers if they can't make workers worse off because the need to make workers worse off is the only logical explanation of why giving boot the boot not making all workers better off overall is number one on this week's hit list but scuttle them sensitivity and kindness well in order to show his sincerity he said all parties must put down their weapons now this put down your weapons bit we know that even if there ever was a struggle in this country it disappeared during the accord period getting true blue Aussie together uh, getting true blue Aussie together and whenever evil unions, or even ever so occasionally, the Socialist Party suggests there might just be the odd difference between caring employers and lazy avaricious workers' approach to, to some issues like, say, gross exploitation, then the evil unions and Socialist Party spokespeople are expressing class envy where there is no class. We're, we're all equal, all good, loyal, true blue Aussies, common interests. 
So I suspect that Scuttle then displayed his true Christian love his dear baby Jesus nature when he said, we'll all lay down our arms, put down our weapons, being the only party that carries weapons and clings to the dated shibboleth of class struggle, making it easier for them to put down those weapons, abandon the myth of class, because why would caring employers and the government have weapons when there's no enemy to destroy and, and they never considered destroying the evil unions, for instance, even though the evil unions wander around flashing their useless weapons and trying to destroy poor caring employers. So it's a bit of a mystery, only clarified by that thought that Scuttle then was being diplomatic, sensitive. And there are thousands of people who've unsuccessfully sought refuge from persecution in this country who would attest to Scuttle them's sensitivity, compassion, was being diplomatic because if the caring employers and the government, sort of the same thing, really had weapons to put down, does this mean there might just be the odd class difference? Dare I say it, class struggle? Nuclear hawk would be turning in his grave and can't understand all this criticism of Donald Trample the Poor. He just can't win with the anti-Trample the Poor lefty anarchists and commies and long-haired greenies, and worst of all, anti-fascists. Here he goes to church to seek the guidance of the dear baby Jesus and displays his innate modesty and self-awareness, knowing that a man who believes indeed boasts he can do whatever he likes with women because he's a celebrity they just can't resist, is not worthy of entering the church. And thus he stands outside, holds a Bible aloft, and swears by Almighty God he will unleash the vicious dogs and not-so-friendly trained killers on the lawless running riot. President Law and Order. And what thanks does he get? He's accused of a publicity stunt, that's what, as if a man of Donald's morals, the big supremo of the US of no less, would use a church as a publicity stunt. Why? He was so intent on displaying his dear his humility, his sensitivity, he went to the trouble of having his way cleared by the caring, sorry, constabulary, sort of the trample the poor version of John the Baptist with the dear baby Jesus, constabulary who were even forced to bash and pepper spray the masses or on or not on the mount, including a true Aussie news crew who were displaying in turn their insensitivity by filming the paramilitary just going about their lawful law and order business. Uh, so, so you didn't go inside because you knew you were unworthy, Donald. I didn't go in because the light out here is better for the cameras. Uh, best light ever, ever. With Donald attempting to play the mediator by threatening wild dogs and bullets, perhaps it's time to explain the confusion of those people on the streets who think the threat to law and order, the criminal activity, was the catalyst for all this. Constable Derek Chauvin garroting Afro-American George Floyd and not their reaction. When it's obvious, as Donald has made clear, the people protesting are the criminals. After all, the murderers were just doing their job. Another, so, sorry, I said it again, maintainer of law and order, killing another non-white person by holding him down with a knee in the neck until he was dead. Garrotting seems to be a popular police method of execution of blacks in the US of, whereas here in Troublewazi, they usually wait till they get them in the cells. Knowing that when an Afro-American or Terranullius person gasps, I can't breathe, 
he, in this case he, is lying because you can't trust what these people say, unlike the truth we get from the responsible authorities like Donald. One US op cop told the ABC that to be a cop, you have to love people, a qualification which somehow over the years seems to have escaped us, but we put it to the test and discovered he was correct. As we ran, you have to love people, past a Minneapolis constable keeping law and order on the streets, Constable Chuck Racistinsky IV. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Without people like you know, there'd be no one to, to like bash, no one you know like to, to beat up on, to, to frame. There, see, loves people. Constable Derek Chauvin obviously overdid the love bit on George Floyd. Here in sympathy with his US of colleagues, a copper threw a Terranilius kid face first into the ground and got stuck into him for the heinous crime of, um, of, of now what was he charged with? Oh, he wasn't charged. So, so why why was he being arrested? His own fault, though, because practicing Donald's sensitivity, the New South Wales Minister for Cop, Cops Beating Up Blacks said there are levels of authority like these giant mine coppers who command respect. And we find it hard to believe, listener, that anyone would not respect great and much-loved authority figures like the police and politicians. So it was the black kid's own fault that he got bashed for not committing a crime. Or, as the top explained, the top, that the copper had a bad day, and therefore, I never thought I'd hear myself say this, but I hope beyond hope that all you coppers out there have a very, very good day. Uh, why was it a bad day, Constable? Because the bloody, you know, like, camera was there. I should have, you know, like, bashed that person and, you know, like, smashed that. Well, if it makes him feel a bit better, the Terranullius kid had an even worse day, a badder day. And credit where credit's due, we've lived with the privatisation of essential services long enough to enjoy the benefits of government justification, efficiency, efficiency ensuring a better, better service and lower, lower prices, removed from the bloated, inefficient hand of the public sector with only the profit motive added to the equation. And we can but imagine how prices for handling containers on our wharves would be if they were still run by the inefficient, bloated hand, because in the two years since state big economic guru Tim Pullis, the other one, told us how much we'd all be better off when he privatised our ports, because even with the super efficiency of the private sector, a $3 something per container fee then has risen ever so slightly to 140 or so, a mere 3,000% increase in two years causing a bit of a rift between the super-efficient port's private owner and the super-efficient shipping industry and its super-efficient customers. The Minister for Ports, not sure what we've got one, seeing we don't own them anymore, but, but she says she'll look at ways of controlling this super-inflation. And just by the by, we might have thought they could have taken those little matters into account before they signed the contract, or even not signed the contract. Oh, no, no, but then it would still be inefficient. 3,000% in two years. My word, the workers must have got a huge increase. In fact, they're probably the cause of it, because the only other possible explanation would be a little matter like greed in a private monopoly. But no, that couldn't be. I can't imagine that. 
finally, this super efficiency explains why the government is throwing billions at the private construction industry because it knows that if it threw all those billions at public housing, for instance, building it and renovating it, that would efficient and the super efficient private sector can be guaranteed not to rip off the scheme not be dull bludgers good morning over the past week the federal government and the mainstream media led by the financial review has been talking about a new accord between government business and unions given that the lowest paid and those in precarious employment have borne the brunt of the covid-19 shutdown with women and young workers disproportionately affected The idea that the ACTU, the Australian Council of Trade Unions, might make deals with the government and business community who are trying to get rid of the overall better-off test, remove conditions and and wage rates and other industrial relations negatives for the working class is a little frightening. I listened into Per Capita's webinar this week advocating a jobs guarantee where Michelle O'Neill, president of the ACTU, categorically denied this was a second accord and that despite Industrial Relations Minister Christian Porter describing Sally McManus, ACTU Secretary, as his new best friend, uh, history isn't forgotten, but negotiating with an arch neocon government and a fat business class is a tough gig. Here is some of what Michelle O'Neill said at the per capita webinar, which was, as I said, advocating a job guarantee. You can get the full play of the event from per capita's YouTube channel. It's not dreaming. For us, the reality is that we have one of the richest countries on earth. Uh, We've had 28 years of economic growth. Um, And the notion that in those circumstances that we haven't been able to have a the objective of full employment and haven't been able to not just have that objective but to be able to actually construct and deliver that for the people of our country is really uh, obscene that it, it is an entirely achievable objective in a country like Australia and and the reason we haven't had it is because uh, really we've had decades and decades now of that not being a government objective no uh, vision for that actually being what we're trying to achieve. And of course, what we know is that instead what we've seen is growing wealth inequality in this country. And that is actually designed into the system. Because if you don't have an objective about saying that uh, full employment is critical to trying to reduce inequality and trying to make sure that every person in our country has the right to live with dignity and to be able to have enough for what they and their family and their community need, then of course we're failing um, as a country to become a fairer country, a more just country. So no, I don't think it's dreaming. I think it's entirely doable. What's lacking is the political will. And of course we have some pretty ferocious forces against the idea. Um, There is, you know, plenty of those people that uh, have Uh, I suppose, a notion that there's some people that shouldn't be able to work or that don't have a right to work. And I reject that. We reject that. Uh, Even those of us in our community who um, have, let's say, severe disabilities, um, what we know is that if you give people an opportunity to participate and you do it in a way that recognises what their, what their strengths are and what their capacity is, 
then the dignity of being able to work and engage with other people and receive fair recompense for that is so important to everyone's sense of themselves and participation in a community. So yeah, I reckon um, going back to the castle, it's not dreaming, mate. We should be able to do it. Well, I think to start with, you're absolutely right that the frame in the narrow sense, in really the capitalist sense of economy is one that is about putting the interest of profit um, and, and large business really above the interest of society and community. And most people don't think of themselves as part of an economy. They think of themselves as part of a family, as part of a community, as part of maybe a society. And so I think that uh, that's a good thing, that that's, that's the way that you're more likely to re relate to what's closest to you and what your understanding of community is. And uh, what's the problem, of course, is the lack of power in that and how many disenfranchised and disempowered communities we have um, and how unequal our society is and how the economy drives that inequality rather than reverses it. So I, I think sort of the, the grabbing of what are the tools to change that is the, is the real answer, not so much the sort of academic argument about are we an economy or a society, because I don't think for most people it, it's about the, the title, it's about their experience. And so what we need to do, of course, is deal with the structural flaws. And the structural flaws are, when you talk about working people, that we have, for example, the third highest rate of insecure work in the OECD, that we have seven years of wage stagnant prior to this, that we have a massive increase in underemployment, that we've got a 14% gender pay gap. And these were all flaws well before we were in a pandemic. So now, of course, we end up in a crisis and they get cracked open and people pull through them because that's why we saw sort of a massive immediate impact in terms of loss of jobs and loss of hours and shifts. And that didn't affect everyone the same. You know, the, the notion that we're all in this together, well, of course, some people have um, fared pretty well out of this. Some people have made money out of this and others, of course, have been left with nothing. And for those that have been excluded from the, the what's been provided, you know, if you think of visa workers, for example, in our country, uh, who we were happy to have working, happy to have them paying tax, um, happy to have them engaging in the economy right up to the minute where it got too hard. And then our answer was to tell people that couldn't leave to go home and provide no safety net. So I, I think that, as I said, it's not so much the definition that worries me as how we try and make sure that people have a sense that we need to reshape um, both our society and an economy in a way that has at its core a fairer system and, and of course, challenges the notion that, the, that those at the top get to call the shots and that there's only a few that have power and influence over government, for example. So the... Um, the important roles of things like the public sector is, is key to this because when you, I mean, again, when you talk to people about what's important, then the notion that taxes are being used to provide good quality healthcare and um, education and community services 
is largely supported. That, that's what people want. But then when we look at what actually happens in the tax system and then we look what happens with the decimation of the public sector and the outsourcing out of what were good quality secure jobs in the public sector and the diminishing of the both the roles and the number of people working in the public sector, but also the, um, I suppose, the capacity for those to be properly supported and resourced and trained. I mean, it, the disasters this year have shown us so clearly what um, what the mistakes have led to. So whether it's the bushfires or the pandemic, you think of Centrelink workers and what we have ended up with in um, compared to what we needed as a genuine service that was going to assist people who were unemployed find jobs, but an outsourced, privatised model, both in terms of even just providing information, let alone any assistance to find work or be able to be supported in training while you're out of work, is so far away from what we've ended up with now in Centrelink, at no fault to the great skilled people working in there, but at fault of successive governments that have um, it really bastardised that notion of what should be a, um, a public sector role in terms of assisting unemployed people and supporting people um, when they need it. And instead, bushfire, I, was, I had a meeting with a lot of the frontline workers in the bushfires and they were telling us that Centrelink workers had this, uh, literally because it would be an outsourced to private providers to answer the emergency calls, people with four hours training four hours training on the other end of the line from someone who's lost everything saying, what help can I get? Of course that is going to be a disaster for the person seeking help, but it's also cruel for the, the worker that's put in a position of not having enough training or support or being engaged in a system to give the assistance that's needed. I think uh, the first one I'd say, John, is people's um, being undervalued for the work that they do. So the, there's so many examples of that. You know, I came from the textile clothing and footwear industry and, and I think often of those um, women predominantly as uh, uh, working, making the clothes that we wear and how often they were described as unskilled when what I know about those women and so many workers in manufacturing is how highly skilled they were. And uh, so, the sense that whether it's in those jobs or early childhood ed education, of course, is another very clear example where, uh, and this is often gender related, where the, the work that uh, workers who are doing, in many cases, caring for either our children or our elderly, um, or people with disabilities, or who are involved in such critical parts of the economy, I. Um, is not valued properly really, I think, is, is stark at how much of a sense of that. And that's not just about value in terms of being low paid, which is of course part of it, but it's also a, a, at a deeper level, not being valued for the quality of what they do. Less workers in the gig economy that, you know, like all those outworkers that I worked with for years, you know, more and more work now where people are told, no, you're you're actually a company, you you take all the risk on you, on your back, literally, if you're driving our takeaway food around to us, riding it around to us, uh, you take the risk rather than 
uh, having the, the very basic rights as a worker to know that if you're injured, you're going to be compensated, to know that you've got rights in terms of health and safety, that you have um, access to superannuation. Have, we've got one in three workers in this country with no access to paid leave. So if that is such a fundamental uh, safety net that we need when uh, we're in the workforce. So to know pre-pandemic even, that if you were sick, you couldn't get paid, the, the trauma that that causes people and their families and the impact on people's um, livelihood is dramatic. So I think insecurity is the second one. The other um, thing that I hear a lot from people is despite all of that, their pride. Um, so pride and dignity in your work is so critical. And it, it, it is, uh, I was talking today to a, um, a young nurse, a 25 year old nurse called Kate, who's been uh, working through the pandemic in a large, large hospital in Sydney. And the pride that she described and um, sort of shone out of it really, when she was talking about what it was like to deal with the crisis, deal with you know, things that a 25-year-old young nurse would never have expected to have to deal with. Um, but the, the, the capacity to have got through that, got through that really out of solidarity and support with all of the other workers that were in the same circumstance. So the pride that both comes from the work you do, but also from the collective response and collective action that workers take. So whether it's in doing the job, of course, or whether it's standing up for their rights and building their collective power to make sure that they are safe, make sure that they're properly um, recognised for the work they do. So I think those three things, um, the, the combination of um, undervaluing, insecurity, and then the pride and dignity of work and how important that is. A determined community campaign over five years won the ban on fracking and a moratorium on onshore gas drilling for Victoria. It was a great victory for grassroots people power, but now the Victorian government has decided to lift the moratorium on onshore drilling, even though its own report admits it won't bring down gas prices. Even worse, they want to open up the west coast of the state to offshore gas drilling. It's essential we stand up now and make it clear that the time for new fossil fuels is over. Join the campaign by checking the Friends of the Earth website at www.melbournefo.org.au slash gas. Friends of the Earth is a 3CR supporter. Goongaroo Environment Centre is a grassroots community organisation campaigning for East Gippsland's precious forests. For over 15 years we've been using direct action, citizen science and community engagement to stop the continued logging of precious native forests and threatened species habitat. After this summer's terrible bushfires there's an even greater urgency to protect what remains and the Victorian government haven't ruled out plans to log the small fragments of unburnt forests and so-called salvage log in burnt areas. It's now so important that forests and wildlife are protected so they can recover. 
Head to gecko.org.au to keep updated with the latest news and to get involved. Gecko acknowledges the logging is happening on the stolen lands of the Gunnakurnai and Bidwell and the Naro people and that sovereignty was never ceded. A 3CR supporter. You're back with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast on 3CR. I caught up with filmmaker Robin Murphy and this is a a feel-good story. Uh, It's great. And it's about her um, newly completed film, Women of Steel. The doco recording the 14-year battle for women's rights to work in the male-dominated workplace, BHP, has been selected for competition at the Sydney Film Festival, which, uh, because of COVID, is online this year. So all you need to do is go to their website and get a ticket. But let's hear from Robin. Congratulations on finishing the film. Yeah, I know. Fantastic, eh? Unbelievable. Unbelievable. I just had no idea. How long has it been? What, making the film? Yeah. A hundred years? Yeah. well, I think I spoke to you, how many years ago was that? Three or four years ago. Yeah, so started with the idea probably after I finished at the Steelworks. I mean, I'd had the idea for ages, but and I always wanted to do a dramatic feature that was sort of in my mind, in my head, that's what I wanted. And um, and I think when I spoke to you last, that was the intent. But, of course, uh, anyone that hasn't made a film for 45 years and hasn't got a name in the film industry and doesn't work for a commercial film company, it's not going to attract any money. Um, so, you know, like, I mean, I'm so committed to telling this story. I thought, right, it's just going to be so much better to make a documentary. So I started about four years ago seriously on the documentary part of it. Well, the story that the film's about is women who were trying to get work at the steelworks in 1980 and um, the company was actually saying to the women, I was one of them, there are no jobs for women, which was pretty unbelievable. I mean, anti-discrimination legislation was already in, in New South Wales. Um, We'd seen a case of uh, an air pilot, Deborah, Deborah Wardsley, or a potential air pilot, who then became one because she took the case to the Anti-Discrimination Board. And uh, But what we realised when we were involved in our campaign is we didn't want to go down the same path because her personal life was dragged over the coals by the media. So when we actually decided to lodge complaints because the company said there's no jobs for women, uh, we realised that we wanted to run a class action because we'd seen what had happened with individual women who'd put in complaints with the Anti-Discrimination Board and their personal lives got hauled over the coals in the media. So we thought, no, we're going to run a class action. We're not going to put any woman through that that sort of bullshit. Um, and so that was part of what happened. We lodged complaints with the Anti-Discrimination Board. And when we did that, we just got this incredible media coverage from, you know, the local area um, about the fact that there were some women taking on BHP. I mean, it was a big Australian. Uh, and But with the legislation, I suppose my feeling, and I think most of the women, the activists that were initially involved, we took the law with a grain of salt. We were not confident that anything would happen with that. So the other thing we did was we campaigned. And uh, the more we... And we set up a tent embassy outside the steelworks. 
And when we did that, and there was media for that too, what happened was all of the women who had their names down on the steelworks for years and years, they all came to reapply because they knew, even though that they weren't sure about this group, this Jobs for Women group, but they knew there was more possibility of getting a job if women were doing something about it. And that's when hundreds of women joined the campaign. That was fantastic. Um, and then, you know, like we we organised lots of public meetings and that. But, I mean, it was interesting times because I think the culture of the time was still very much uh, reflecting the 70s attitude that, you know, women should stay at home and... Um, you know, this sort of work is men's work um, and that, you know, we and we take all of these attitudes up in the film. Um, we try to try to reflect some of the feelings at the time, but we also juxtapose it with some of the history of women in the workforce. I mean, they had women in the workforce during the wars when men went off to, to fight it was women that were recruited into, you know, places like the steelworks, and they did great jobs. Um, and then they were forced out when the women, when the men came back from war. It, it reflects uh, culture, Australian culture, and you know the sexism inherent in it. And women should know their place, whatever that place is. But also, the uh, marrying of um, working class ethics with a more uh, activist intelligentsia approach. That's really interesting, isn't it? Can't stop that. <laughs> I mean, you're right about uh, taking it, you know, taking it to legislation, fighting that fight is a really, lots of grit and, and strength and uh, know-how. But then it's the other stuff, like the working class women, who, you know, the pent-up emotion... Uh, and their lack of rights that were behind it. Yeah, and yes, and uh, I mean the other aspect aspect of all of that is that we're talking about migrant women, women who didn't have English as a first language, women who'd worked in their own countries on farms, had done heavy work, had an expectation that they'd get a job in the steelworks when their families migrated to Australia, you know, earlier on. So um, that was, uh, you know, the strength of, of all of those women from Macedonia and Turkey and Chile and Greece. Um, that was just so amazing to have those women on board. And, I mean, the, there were difficulties with the language. A lot of our meetings were, went for hours and hours because we had to interpret everything. And those of us... Um, who were aware of the law. It, it, it just takes a while to explain Australian law to someone who's only just, you know, not only just arrived. I mean, the, the women had been here for a number of years and their husbands were working and they weren't. Um, but to explain the law to someone who probably feels very shy about doing anything publicly, um, that was really, really important and uh, it gave them confidence to be able to do things. We had so many different strategies. We approached federal mem members and state members of parliament, invariably Labor at that time, because I'm, very few uh, Liberal or National parties would would support us. 
And we got all of those politicians, particularly the local ones, to come out and put out press releases in our support. And that made a lot of difference to um, to those women as well, seeing their local parliamentary member coming out supporting us. So, yeah, I mean, that, um, but I mean, what happened was the actual story was we campaigned so hard in that first nine months that through that public campaigning and also the Anti-Discrimination Board um, meeting with the company, there was a lot of pressure for them to employ us. I mean, personally, I didn't think I'd ever get a job because I was one of the organisers, but, you know, that was a bonus. <laughs> and, and um, you know, like, so 34 women who, who lodged complaints yeah, so all the complainants got jobs. We got jobs at the end of that year and the beginning of 1981. But within about eight or nine months, we were we could see the writing on the wall that retrenchments were coming down. Ah. There was a steel slump. And yeah, so hello, we knew what was going to happen next. That we, Because of the union principle of last on, first off, that was quite strong at that time, it did mean that, we would get retrenched, and yes, we did get retrenched, most of us. And I, I, look, I support that. Um, that's a hard one policy, last on, first off, by the union movement. I'm pretty sure it doesn't even exist now. But at that time, it does protect older workers, union delegates, and um, but it doesn't protect women if they have been marginalised and discriminated against in the first place. I mean, had we been employed like the men when we applied, the men got jobs within a few weeks, and for most of the women it was four or five years, longer. Uh, so we didn't have the seniority when the retrenchments came round, so we lost our jobs. So then we reopened our complaints and the, um, we had the legal case really started to run properly then um, and because we'd never gone to court in the first time when the first... Complaints were lodged that we weren't, you know, that we weren't allowed to to work at the steelworks. Pretty brave stuff. Yeah. I mean, there was there's the stuff in the courts, and there's like you said, you protected yourself from the um, shameless media as prying into uh, into a person's p- personal life because apparently women are open slather. That was a clever tactic. Originally, there were a couple of women who uh, went into the steelworks undercover didn't they they yep. they infiltrated yes that yes well that happened in 1973 which is seven years earlier and um uh those women got dressed in steelworks clothes and uh and and this was all through the working women's charter which was the group that we also you know we were involved in and when we initiated the second campaign which really took off but the, that first um, action was great because what happened then was that highlighted to everyone that, you know, women needed work in, the, in wherever and the company actually put on women after that, you know, that media event. I don't think any of those women, women ever got jobs, but it did force the company to employ women <clears throat> and they started to employ women, but they employed them in the tin mill uh, so a totally sex segregated part of the workforce in what was, you know, BHP, where you do really monotonous, repetitive work. It was an area that men just 
wanted to transfer out of as quickly as they could. They couldn't stand it. So, so it was a very sex-segregated workforce. So the fight was on a whole lot of different levels. So it was on a societal level. Yeah. And yes. it was against uh, the capital. It was also, uh, in a sense, against uh, partners. Would that be right? Did, were male partners, uh, men who were working at still works, were they open to this uh, opening up of the jobs? Oh, look, I mean, one of the things that we were convinced of was that it was no good campaigning for jobs in the steelworks if we didn't have the support of steelworkers. I mean, the worst thing you'd want to do is put a woman in an area where people turn around and tell her to piss off. They don't want her there. Um, so that was another that was another like tactic that we had thought of. And so one of the first things we did was we went to our union. We were unemployed. We weren't even me- members of a union, but we went knocking on their door with um, a couple of the strong union women that were in the Working Women's Charter who were in other unions but supported us. And we put our case to them and... Um, you know, we explained, look, we don't want men's jobs. We don't want any man displaced by a woman getting a job. We just believe there's enough work, you know, to share around and we just want our own jobs. And so it was called the Federated Iron Workers Union. It's now the Australian Workers Union. And they they were totally supportive. In fact, even before we lodged complaints with the Anti-Discrimination Board, they approached the company and said, you know, we want you to employ these women. And the company said, oh, no, we're not, you know, you've got too many disputes on, we're not going to talk to you, which is just a typical company reply to anything the union. Uh, I was just going to say, having the union support was really important. And also what we did was when we got to the steelworks and we set up tents, our aim was to win across all of the men. So we had a petition and leaflets in about seven different languages so that all the men could read what we were trying to do and we were trying to encourage them to tell their wives to join the campaign. <laughs> so in reality, you know, I mean, it, you know, everyone supported us. The only, you know, we had about, we collected 2,000 signatures over, you know, overnight, on a couple of days, a couple of nights, camping outside the steelworks and... Um, I think there were only two people that came up and said something nasty. Everybody else, oh, yeah, you know, really, really. They could relate to us because, I mean, they suffered. Most most men there that had, didn't, you know, the migrant men, they they felt discrimination at, at the steelworks from, you know, Australian, young Australian males, Australian males. So they knew what it was like oh, from the company. I knew what discrimination was. Yeah. That's it for Solidarity Breakfast for this week. Don't forget to donate to keep us going. And if you are able, there is a demonstration in support of Black Lives Matter at the Parliament Steps at 2pm today, Saturday. See you there. Appropriately mask and social distancing. I can't breathe with all this information thrown at me. This is the war that we've all been waiting for. So don't turn on your radio. We're gonna rise, we're gonna rise. Don't listen to those TV shows. Not tonight.
Community, uh, think of 3CR. When you think of radio, think of 3CR. This is Joan Armour Trading asking you to support your community radio station, 3CR, the only alternative. listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.